Good morning again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible word. Oh, Father, may you, by the Spirit, ignite at this very moment a love for you, a love for your words so that our minds will focus and pay attention to the extraordinary beauty of the words that we just heard. And to that end, help me as a teacher be faithful to it. And make things as simple as possible, but not simpler. Through Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Just think about how hard it is to get the simple, pure, clear, gospel of Jesus over to someone who is steeped in religious traditions. Some of us speak in this country of what we call the Bible Belt. My wife and I have family in the Bible Belt. But we don't often mean it in a positive way. We often mean it in a way that it's a barrier to the conversion of, of many with the clear gospel because their culture is Christian. They grew up in it. And so there are so many who feel 
secure in their salvation, even though they do not have ears to hear the clear, actual gospel. Tradition. Religious traditions are really hard to change. Now, back in the first century, when this letter is being written, the Jews, they rightly believed that God had ordained the traditions and the practices of the Mosaic law given 1,400 years before Christ. The law was the very center of the Jewish culture. They ordered their lives around the Sabbath and, and around the yearly feasts. The priests and the Levites had charge and oversaw the worship in the temple in Jerusalem. The sacrifices and the rules for ceremonial cleansing, they were all spelled out in the Bible, in the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And so to challenge the validity of these practices, of their culture, it was to risk your life. Right before fellow Jews killed the Jewish Christian Stephen by throwing rocks at his head in front of the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 6 says, they charged this. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple. And will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And Paul's opponents, they shouted in Acts chapter 21, while Paul was in the temple, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and against the law of Moses. And this place, the temple. And so, the writer now, to the Hebrews here, the Hebrew Christians has a huge task trying to convince them that the law and the Levitical priesthood which they were inseparably linked, they were now obsolete. Passing away. Set aside. Because of the better covenant with the priesthood of Jesus. In our text, this writer makes some radical statements about the law. He says, it was weak and useless. 
He says, it made nothing perfect. And he says, because of those problems, it has been changed. It has been set aside. He is drawing a clear dividing line between Judaism and Christianity. And you cannot blend the two. Jesus alone is the better hope through which we or anybody draws near to God. Now last week we saw in verses 1 to 10 that the writer's argument starts with Melchizedek from Genesis as a type of Christ, of Jesus, pictured him, and he made it clear that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Superior to the law, the Levitical priesthood. Because they provide the way for us to draw near to God. Melchizedek is the type. Jesus is the high priest and the fulfillment. And so now, in verses 11 to 19, his, his argument is divided up into two, two parts. The first is verses 11 to 14, where he argues the inferiority of the law and the Levitical priesthood. Then, in verses 15 to 19, he shows us the superiority of the new covenant in the priesthood of Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek. So first, he makes the point right in front of you, in verses 11 to 14, that the law and the Levitical priesthood were inferior because they could not make anyone perfect. Okay, we're going to have to sit on that word perfect for a couple minutes. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Okay, just stop there. The writer emphasizes this word, perfection, or perfect, or made perfect throughout the letter to the Hebrews. Now, the way he's using it, it, it does not mean being without flaw or defect. Okay, for instance, one of the major commentators on the book of Hebrews, numerous commentators, some of you know who he is, Leon Morris, he says, concerning the way the writer uses the word perfect here, he says, quote, and I agree with him, and I'll try to show it in a minute, quote, it refers to the condition in which men are acceptable to God. In other words, to, to have 
a priesthood, make a person perfect, means to put that person in a place of standing before God acceptable to Him. Okay, so notice, just jump down to verse 19 for a second. He says in chapter 7, verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect, acceptable before God. Chapter 9, verse 9, he says, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, referring to the Levitical priesthood, cannot perfect, make acceptable the conscience of the worshiper. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near through the law. But what the law could not do, Jesus did. This is how he says it in chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's the only one that makes any sinner acceptable, perfected in the presence of God. So let's follow his argument in verses 11 to 14. Let your mind focus there and see why the law of Moses, why the Levitical priesthood is inferior. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, then what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So, it's a rhetorical question, obviously. So let me just paraphrase it and restate it so we can see the argument he's doing. What he is saying is this, is because the law of Moses with the Levitical priesthood could not bring perfection. In other words, it could not cleanse people so that they were acceptable to God. Because of that, therefore, there was a need for another priest to arise. Not another priest in the lineage of Aaron, according to the law of Moses, no. But a priest according to another order, after the order of Melchizedek. So keep, it, keep in mind that the Jews... Now, they regarded the law of Moses 
They regarded the, the sacrificial system and all of that as utterly sacred and unchangeable. But the writer, he points now to Psalm 110 verse 4, which King David wrote about a thousand years earlier at the height of the Levitical priesthood. And Psalm 110, as you know, and I read this morning, is a messianic psalm about the Messiah, about the son of David to come, to sit on the throne. And David predicts by the Holy Spirit that that one not only will sit on the throne of Yahweh, but he will also be a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he's saying the Levitical priesthood, and thus the law of Moses, were insufficient. That they were not the ultimate goal. Verse 11, that's what he's saying. In verse 12, he unfolds what he just said there in verse 11. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. In other words, the law and the, and, and the priesthood are so linked that when the priesthood is changed, which he's arguing it is, the law had to change. As well. This is an argument, and that is earth shattering to Jews. It's a threat to the very foundation of their entire religious system, and that's their lives, their culture. And then in verses 13 and 14, they go on to support what he just said there in verse 12 that there's a necessary change of the law. For, he unfolds it, here it is, for the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. An altar is a place where you're doing sacrifices as priests. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, Levi's brother. He's descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses, meaning the law, Moses said nothing about priests. So, in other words, he explains the change in the law by, by showing Jesus' high priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. It's not from the line or lineage of Levi and Aaron, which was prescribed in the law, but he's from Judah. And that's a change. So, the overall point of verses 11 to 14 is that the law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood were inferior because they could not make anyone perfect. 
acceptable to God. Then he moves on now in verses 15 to 19. And he argues for the superiority of the new covenant. The priesthood of Jesus which does enable sinners to be accepted, to draw near to God. Let's read, start with verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement, meaning from the law of Moses, concerning bodily descent, uh-uh, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So, the qualifications for being a Levitical priest they were external. You had to be born through the lineage of Levi. And, and you had to have, be free of, of certain physical defects. And you had to wear particular clothing. And you had to go through particular washings, all prescribed in the law. At the core, that's what he means when he says about Jesus, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. All that stuff was external. But Jesus, he's become a priest like Melchizedek based on something intrinsic or internal to him. Quote, but by the power of an indestructible life. So we saw last week that in Genesis 14, the deliberate leaving out any lineage, genealogy, where he came from, his death, none of that is there, was to use him, therefore, as a type, a picture of Christ, who is truly and intrinsically eternal. That's what he said back in verse 3, remember? Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But he did become a human being and he did die for our sins. And he was resurrected into human resurrection forever and ascended and is forever our high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. Okay. So then, the writer answers the question, okay, well, since that's true of Jesus and what's happened now historically, what does that mean? And he answers it in verses 18 and 19. On the one hand, a former commandment is set 
aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So the law and the Levitical priesthood, he says, are now set aside. Because they were weak. They were useless. And that setting aside is a legal term, meaning they are, they're annulled. The weakness and the uselessness of the law. Let me just say it this way now. It wasn't the law's problem as if something in itself or the reason it was given was wrong. Now what I mean is this. I'm going to either turn there or just listen. Paul makes this short little statement in Romans 7. Verse 12, concerning the law. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is us. <laughs> it's what Paul calls it. It's the weakness of our sinful Flesh or natures, which meant we could never keep the law. That's what Paul goes on to say in Romans 7, verses 13 to 14. Quote, so did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? Okay, in the way he got to listen to, in that sense, answer, no. By no means. But what? It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good. The law. Why? In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the law, through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. One of the reasons that God instituted the law of Moses was to show us, all Jew and Gentile, the sinfulness of our hearts. And as such, the law was never designed to bring sinners to God. This is what the author means when he says, For the law made nothing or no one perfect. Sinners were prevented from entering the holy of holies. The, the picture of where God's presence dwells. And the sacrifices prescribed by the law of Moses, they could never bring a person into God's presence and take away their sins. He made it clear just in chapter 10, right? The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. 
And so that then, the negative, leads to the positive. The negative, he said there in verse 19, is that the law is set aside. Now the positive. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that better hope, it refers to the person Jesus. And thus it refers to the new covenant. Just jump down to verse 22 quickly. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So in other words, Jesus' high priesthood doesn't keep us sinners at a distance from God, as was the purpose of the law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood. But it's a much, much better priesthood. This is what he's unfolding, what we looked at a couple of weeks ago at the very end of chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Here it is. We have a better hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain that blocked the presence of God from the people. Oh, it is where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the better hope that he says in verse 19, through which we draw near to God. And we're not incinerated, but we're welcomed. And loved and treated as sons and daughters. Okay. What we've heard so far here, that is a massive theological statement. It is a huge historical redemptive issue. God gave the law for 1,400 years and then Jesus shows up. And in what he did, it meant the law is now set aside as we move continually now through history. And because it's so big, we spend less of our time thinking about that issue. The issue of what? That, that Jesus, thus slash, the new covenant supersedes and makes obsolete the old covenant. In other words, that new covenant, say it this way, it supersedes what it meant to be under the law. 
Well, Jesus came for us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. He was born under the law. If you're a Christian, you're not under the law. Verse 12 says there's been a change in the law. Verse 18 says, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Okay, so here's the question. <laughs> How are we who are in Christ, we who are true Christians, how are we to relate to the law of Moses and its commandments? That's the question. So if the law of Moses is set aside, does that mean it does not matter if we murder? Doesn't matter if we commit adultery or steal or dishonor our parents? The answer to that question is, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. But it does mean we're not under the law as Christians. You good? Alright, so that deserves... A slow, systematic, biblical explanation to unfold what I just said. So here we go. And start with Romans 7, verse 4. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. Christian, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong, not to the law, but to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Why? In order that we may bear fruit for God. When Christ died for us, we died with Him. God looked on us who believe, or who would ever believe, as united to Jesus on the cross. And His death for our sin was our death in Him. But sin was not the only reality that killed Jesus. It wasn't the only reality that killed us. You know what else killed him and killed us? The law. The law of God. The law of Moses. When we break the law of God, the law of Moses, by sinning, the law also, therefore, sentences us 
to death. That's why. See, if there is no law in the state of California for a particular thing, you can't prosecute the person. And Paul argues the same way in Romans 5. If there is no law, there would be no punishment. But there is a law. And there's no escape from the law's penalty. The, the law itself calls it, that, that penalty, the curse. There would be no escape from the curse that the law brings down upon us. Be because the law is just, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good, and we were guilty. There was only one way to be free. Someone had to allow the penalty to be paid justly and to its full. And Galatians 3 verse 13 is crystal clear about that. When Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And therefore God's law, if you're in Christ, it cannot now nor ever condemn you. power of the law to rule over the Christian has been broken in two ways. First, because all the law's demands of us have been fulfilled by one man our Lord Jesus Christ in His humanity and His fulfilling and doing and thus showing His perfect human righteousness. This is what Christianity is, has been granted to our account, imputed to us. The law's demands in that sense, it's been broken. He did it. And then there's a second thing that he did. The law's penalty against us has been paid by the cross of Christ. This is why the Bible so clearly teaches that getting right with God is not ever based on our Obedience to the law. Paul writes in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous or accepted in God's sight. Galatians 2.16, A person is not accepted or justified by works of the law, but 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. okay, so if the law is set aside, and we're dead to the law, and thus it's no longer a master over us, do not murder. Honor your father and your mother. Have no other gods before you. Do not bear false witness. Okay, but it's no longer master of us. Then what do we do? How are we to live? How are we to please God? The biblical answer is that instead of being under the law, which demands and condemns, we have been united to a person. We belong to Jesus Christ, who demands and gives with no condemnation. When we were without Christ, righteousness was demanded of us from outside of us. It was there. In letters written on stone tablets, it, written then on parchment and on papyrus and on paper. I'm a sinner, and there's God's law written. It's only Letters. We're dead. But then Christ came, made the believer alive by new birth. And thus we're in Christ and He's in us. And true, though not perfect, true worship rises up from within us as this longing in our relationship with Jesus. He's real. And by His Holy Spirit, He's present and He is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight as we battle this remaining weakness of our sinful natures. In other words, a living person has replaced a condemning list of do's and don'ts. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. God has made us competent to be servants of a, hear, hear him, a new covenant. And he, he unpacks it. A new covenant, not of the letter written out here 
outside of us. No, no. A new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is why Paul calls the way of obedience in the Christian life fruit-bearing and not law-keeping. We read it earlier. I'll read it again. Chapter 7, verse 4. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. Okay, I know this is intense thinking about it. We're going to go to one more important passage on this. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Therefore, if you understand the gospel and you're in Christ, you've been justified by faith in Christ, apart from works of the law. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He can't be clear. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He, God, condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, live our lives, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That most wonderful verse one, one, and rightly so, one of the most popular verses in all the Bible to us Christians. That's the foundation of everything. There is therefore now no condemnation. That, that's justification. That's the ground floor of your whole life. Then verse 2 comes in. And it's the evidence of verse 1. It's not, this is important, it's not the cause of verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Here's the evidence. And that's what he means by for or because in this. Let me just say what I mean. Okay, look, if I were to say, I'm hungry because my stomach's growling. I don't, by stomach growling, I don't mean my growling stomach is causing the first thing, hunger. I mean it's the evidence. And that's what he's doing here with the flow. No condemnation. And then verse 2, for, here's your evidence, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law, the letter of the law of sin and its curse, death. And then he goes on, 
verse 3. And he starts it again with four, because it's a ground of what he just said. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And he, he says, here it is. This is what he's done. He did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So in other words, the foundation, the ground of our freedom from condemnation is the work of God for us on the cross. And it's given as the basis of verse 2. Verse 2. Look at you, Christian. Is this you? Is it you? The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin Condemnation, death. Why? Because, that's verse 3, God condemned sin in his son's death. Okay, now, wrapping up. Why is that so crucial? Here's the rub. The thing that brings us freedom from condemnation that we see there in verse 1. The thing that brings our freedom from condemnation is not our walking by the Spirit. Just let it sink in. It is Jesus' substitutionary death. That's what frees us from judicial guilt and thus condemnation. And then that's the foundation for our sanctification. That's the foundation for our living out the Christian life. No condemnation precedes and supports our transformation. It's not the other way around. The Holy Spirit is now enabling us to serve God in a new, a, a free, and a joyful way. And this is the result of having been released from condemnation that the law brings. So what that means is this. Any human being who wants to be set right with God, don't ever look to the law. Don't ever look to a list of do's and don'ts. Through faith in Jesus alone. And so you say, yes, now I'm justified. By faith, I have peace with God. Now, having been justified, 
by Christ, alone, what do you do? You still don't turn to the law and the list in order to fulfill it. Then what's the Christian life? Paul's told us. It's the life of the Spirit. It's the life of us belonging to another. The Christian life is an ongoing turning to the resurrected living Christ. Our high power of sanctification is not the law, but it is the indwelling presence of the Spirit of Christ. The key is a person and our relationship with Him. The key is Christ. Being seen and adored and treasured above all things and pursuing that where he shows himself, which is the Word of God, the Scriptures. You, believer, are not under law, but you're under the power of grace. The law could make nothing perfect or presentable to God. The law could not and cannot overcome our rebellion. It cannot conquer our pride. It is letter. And letter kills only the Spirit, the living, indwelling Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit gives life. And He changes us from the inside at the core. He, here's a new covenant, and He'll get there, writes the, His what's right and what is wrong. He writes it on our hearts. He wins our deep allegiance and affections. Because we see Him for he, who He is by the very Holy Spirit of God who has been infused into our spirits. And so we taste and see that He is good. And that's the process of breaking the power of sin in our lives that exist. But the better way to say it with, with, with Romans and what Paul is saying, that's the process of breaking those strongholds of sin that has already been canceled. There is therefore now no condemnation. And so, the law cannot save you, nor can the law sanctify you. Only Christ can do that through ongoing faith, trust alone.
every religion in the world except for biblical Christianity teaches that you must do something to gain acceptance with God. So, so, so if you, if a person at, at the beginning or even down the road of the Christian life ever seek to qualify yourself to be accepted by God, then you do not understand the gospel. So continue, let us continue to flee to Christ, to commune with Christ through the word where he reveals himself and allow him by the Spirit to cause us to be satisfied in Him. This is crucially important because unless you pursue obedience through seeing and enjoying Jesus your Savior, you won't get the transformation that you need. And he won't get the glory. It is by what verse 19 of Hebrews 7 says. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we today draw near to God. It's Christ, 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 to whom we belong. He is our better hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, whom you did not spare. You gave him, and you slaughtered him on a cross for us all. And thus we rest upon that foundation that it is impossible for you not to give us all things that we need. From now through eternity to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Let us stand and worship him.